Do take your Bibles and turn uh, to John chapter 19. That's, I think, page 905 in the church Bible. Uh, That passage we read together earlier. Whenever you come, perhaps you're not familiar with uh, the Bible or with the study of the Bible, but one of the ways that we ascertain what the main theme of a passage is, is to look at words that recur again and again within the passage. And if you could begin at verse 16, it soon becomes very clear what the theme of this section is. In verse 16, for example, we have Pilate's action. He delivered him, Jesus, over to them to be crucified. Then in verse 17, we have Jesus carrying the burden They took Jesus, and He went out bearing His own cross. Then in verse 18, when they got to Golgotha, there they crucified Him. Verse 19, there was an inscription that was put on the cross. Then in verse 20, many of the Jews were reading this inscription because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. Verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took His garments. Verse 25, we're told that there were those who were standing by the cross. So, you don't really need a PhD to work out that the theme of the section is what? It is the cross. It is to be crucified. This is where we've come to. We've come a long way to get here. We started in John chapter 1, and there we learned that the one about whom we are reading is face to face with God from all eternity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was face to face with God, and by Him all things were made. And there is nothing made that was not made by Him. He is the light, the light that lightens everyone, that gives life to everyone and everything. That's where we began. We began before there was anything. We began before there was time. We began before there was anything creaturely. We began before there was anything of creation. That's where the story begins. Before Bethlehem, before the Garden of Eden, before creation itself, that's where the story began. And this is where we've come to. This is where we've come to. In that first chapter, we learn the Word became flesh. And we're familiar with that flesh. We know the story of that human flesh, that person, the one that the disciples met, the one the disciples have described to us and explained to us. We've become familiar with that person. Those of us who are believers tonight cannot come objectively to the story that we're studying this evening as if it were somehow or other unrelated to who we are and what we are. We know this one. We have known about this one from our earliest days, some of us, or 
Others of us have come to know Him in later life, but we know Him. We know His story. We know about His birth in Bethlehem. We know about His mother Mary. We know about her experience of of having the birth announced to her. We we know the poverty into which she was born. We know the the threat to his life early on that led her, his parents to take him down to Egypt to a place of safety. We know all of these things. We know that he went to a wedding that John tells us about in chapter 2. We know that he turned water into wine. We know that he fed multitudes of people with bread. We, we know that he healed people, that he, he made blind people see and deaf people hear and lame people jump around with joy. We know that He did those things. We know that He raised dead people to life. We know Him. He's our friend. We can't breathe without Him. We can't get up in the morning and live without Him. We can't face terminal illness and death without Him. He is everything to us. He is our life and our being. He is everything we live for. There is not one moment of our lives for which He is not the most significant factor. We know Him. He has changed everything for us. We do not wish to exist in a universe in which He is not present. And it's come to this. It's come to this. It begins by us observing the bearing of the cross. We're told in verses 16 and following that we find Jesus being taken in charge. That's the phrase that's used. Taken in charge by the soldiers. Being a condemned man, he is pressed into carrying the cross to the place of execution. So he went out bearing his own cross, literally bearing it for himself, thus stressing that Jesus did this work. He did this work himself, carrying the very wood on which he would be fastened as a sacrifice for our sins. And there are echoes in that very, in that very verse. There are echoes of another incident that happened a long time before, perhaps nearly 2,000 years before, when a man called Abraham is taking his son Isaac up the very same mountain that Jesus is on to be crucified, uh, to, be, to be sacrificed on the very same mountain that Jesus is about to be sacrificed on. And we read about that boy Isaac, that he carried the wood for the sacrifice up the hill behind his father who took the wood and laid it out in order that he might lay his own son on that wood and there sacrifice him as an offering to God, as an act of obedience to God. We don't understand how Abraham had the faith to do that. He believed, we're told in the Bible, he believed that God was able to raise his son from the dead even. And as Abraham is about to plunge his knife into his own son, Isaac, whom he loves. There's a sound of an animal caught in the thicket. It is a a ram, a lamb that has been caught in the thicket. And the lamb dies instead of Isaac dying. 
And ever since the beginning of John's gospel, we've had identified that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it's come to this, bearing His cross. He Himself, only He can accomplish this sacrifice. Only He can go to the cross on our behalf. And the thought that comes to mind is that the God who spared Abraham's son will not spare His only Son, bearing the cross. Then the focus changes, and we look at the one on the cross. There they crucified Him when they came to the place of the skull. Two things happen on the cross. First of all, on the cross, Jesus was crucified. Look at verse 18. Uh, John describes the horror that was crucifixion in one single word. There they crucified Him. Crosses were, of course, familiar to the people of John's day. They came in various forms. Sometimes a tree with Y-shaped branches were used. Sometimes a great stake in the ground to which the victim was pinned, sometimes the familiar crossbeam on a stake would be hoisted up, and the figure would be pinned to that cross. They were fastened to the cross either with ropes or with nails. Their feet were just off the ground, not necessarily very high, as often we picture when we think of the cross of Jesus. His feet would be quite close to the ground. He would be within talking distance just above the heads of those who are standing by. It would be very easy for the soldiers to hand up on some hyssop, some water for his lips to uh, enable him to speak. He was kept there by a horn projecting that took the weight of the body to prevent the flesh from tearing. It was, a, it was a terrible death. Leon Morris wrote, Nothing could be more horrible than the sight of this living body, breathing, seeing, hearing, still able to feel, yet reduced to the state of a corpse by forced immobility and absolute helplessness. We can't even say that a crucified person writhed in agony because it was impossible for them to move. Just as he had done when speaking earlier of the scourging, John mentions it, crucifixion, and passes on. The brevity is in direct contradiction to popular piety. In the history of the church, there has been a lot of focusing on the the pains and the agonies of Christ leading up to His death. There has been a great focus on and interest in the kind of physicality of the sufferings that He's enduring. John does not go into detail. In some churches, there is a regular reminder of every element of the sacrifices and agonies He endured. But John does not go into detail. There, they crucified Him. 
The gospel writers make no attempt to satiate, satiate our bloodlust or tug at our heartstrings. John tells us that Jesus was crucified with two others, one on either side, with Jesus in the middle. This, to Jesus' enemies, would have been the final indignity. Here He is among the criminal classes in His death, as Isaiah had prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53. But for John and for us, Jesus crucified between the criminals, even though He was innocent, even though He was sinless, is to us the greatest joy and our greatest treasure. To think that He came to save sinners by making Himself one with sinners in His death. To think that He came to bear sin and to be identified with those who had broken God's law in order that He might be our substitute and our representative and our Savior blows our minds, transforms our lives. On the cross, Jesus was crucified. And on the cross, Jesus was identified. Pilate also, we read verse 19, in addition to the other indignities that he'd shown the Jews, wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. Very often when a criminal was being led to the cross, there would be someone who would walk in front of them, and they would carry a placard, and on the placard would be written the guilt, the, guilt, the sins or uh, wrongdoings of which he was or she was guilty. Usually men were crucified. But there was no placard, for there were no accusations that held. His judge had three times pronounced him free of guilt. There was nothing worthy of crucifixion. Pilate was furious, of course. Pilate is furious because he felt bulldog, bulldozed into ordering Jesus' death, and he wants, he wants to get back at the Jews. And so he, as a parting shot, orders this inscription to be placed above Jesus' head. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Crucifixions took place in public spaces. This was a public space just outside the city wall of, the, of Jerusalem. It was on the main road. People were coming up to the gate of the city. They would be passing it, going about their ordinary business, going to the market, going back home again, going on business, going back home again. It was designed to have major impact by the Romans, shock and awe. It was meant to be a reminder. This is what happens to you if you break Roman law. This is where you end up, crucified. And so we read, many of the Jews read the inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. Executions were public occasions. There would have been many people who would have come just to look. They'd heard about Jesus. They wanted to see His end. He was a well-known teacher and healer. Loads of people would be there. And Pilate takes advantage. He wants to humiliate the Jews. He has it written in Aramaic, the language of the country. He has it written in Greek, the common language of communication throughout the Roman world. He has it written in Latin, the official 
language. And Pilate is responsible for ensuring that as Jesus hangs on the cross, Jesus' own language, His own words are fulfilled. I, if I be lifted up, will draw all people to Myself. That the language of Isaiah, He will be high and exalted and lifted up, was not only referring to His exalted divine status, but His being lifted up on the cross. The cross is becoming His throne. He will rule the world from His cross by virtue of His cross, by virtue of His obedience and blood, He will reign. Once again, the kingship motif motif is brought into the picture. And the Jewish authorities, they know this is not what we want here. They look, verse 21, the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but rather add the words in, this man said. Because they'd refused Jesus as their king. Although that was the reason they gave to Pilate, this man makes himself a king, they refused his authority. And Pilate will have none of it. He says with an air of finality that would not alter anything that had been written, Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. It will stand. What Pilate didn't know is it was going to stand for all time. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now, neither Pilate nor the Jews believed that Jesus was King. But in the sovereignty of God, His claim is recorded for all time, placarded for all to see, another example of God using sinful people to achieve His purpose. In fact, as we see Jesus on the cross, we know Him to be King of kings and Lord of lords. We know that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Bearing the cross on the cross. And thirdly, near the cross. The focus changes. The camera pans out. We look at those who are standing nearby looking upwards at the victim on the cross. Near the cross, there were some soldiers gambling. We read this, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took His garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also His tunic. But His tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom, so that they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the Scripture, which says, quote, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. It wasn't unusual for the soldiers to commandeer the clothing and the the effects of a crucified or executed man. These would have included an outer garment, an undergarment, a loincloth, a belt, sandals. And the soldiers on duty, apparently four of them that day, cast lots to determine which item belonged to which soldier. 
And in the process of dividing up the stuff, they came across this coat, this undergarment, which instead of being made of different pieces of cloth and, and uh, sewn together, had been woven in one piece from the top to the bottom without a seam. That made it very valuable. Uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that the high priest's coat, same word, was of this type, woven in one piece. could be that John recognized that there was some importance to that, and that's why he reports this fact that takes place. He says that may be significant because he's already emphasized or introduced us to the idea of Jesus as the high priest who offers the sacrifice for himself, of himself. But John notices as he reflects on this, that this fulfills some words in Psalm 22. John does not tell us why he thought of Psalm 22, but the other gospel writers John is familiar with what they've written. They tell us why. It is because Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the very first verse of that psalm. And very often in the Bible, if not uniformly in the Bible, where a part of a Scripture is cited, we are meant to go and look at the rest of it. And so Jesus is saying from the cross, You want my perspective on what's going on here? Read Psalm 22. Those are the words of the Holy Spirit conveyed to David, in which David heard the voice of the Son of God describing to his father what he'd endured on the cross. Part of that psalm says this, dogs encompass me, Gentiles. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. John sees this fulfilled before his own eyes as Jesus hangs there. This detailed description in Psalm 22, given by the psalmist through the Holy Spirit, is a wonderful confirmation of the mastery and wonders of God whose will was accomplished in every detail. It was because of God's decree that these people acted as they did of their own free will, but because of the decree of God, Near the cross, there were soldiers gambling. And near the cross, there were followers standing. Deserted as Jesus was by His disciples, He was not utterly abandoned. Remember, they all ran away. They were vamoose. They'd gone. But some women stood by the cross, four believing women, who stand as a contrast to these four gambling soldiers. John describes them. There was Mary. The Lord's mother was there, though she's unnamed. John 
is the only gospel writer who mentions the presence of Jesus' mother at the cross. But John typically does not mention the names either of himself or of his family. And in this case, he does not mention Mary's name. Mary's sister is there. We know her name is likely Salome, who was the mother of James and John. Again, John, who's writing the gospel, doesn't name himself or his family, and so he doesn't give his mother's name here. Then there is Mary, the wife of Clopas. We we don't know too much about this woman except that she was one of the women who went to the tomb on the resurrection morning. She was one of those women who tried unsuccessfully to persuade the disciples that Christ had risen, but they didn't believe her. And she was the mother of the apostle James, the son of Alphaeus. That name Alphaeus is a variant of Clopas. And finally, there was Mary Magdalene. Mary was never a prostitute, as Dan Brown wants us to believe in his books, popular books. She was delivered of seven demons and was one of those women who ministered to Jesus and, along with others, financed his team. These women were standing near the cross, close enough to hear his voice, close enough for Him to speak to them. Their love for Jesus had overcome their fear. They'd followed, they'd stayed as close as they could, and now they come as near as as it's possible to come to comfort Him by their presence. And He is conscious of their presence. And in His anguish, Jesus took thought of His mother. It is an infinitely moving thing that Jesus, in the agony of the cross, in that moment where the salvation of the world hangs in the balance, that He thought of the loneliness of His mother in the days after He would be taken away. His brothers, the sisters, the rest of his family didn't believe in him. His mother believed in him. And so to his cousin John, he commits his mother. Right to the very end, Jesus fulfills all the duties of a son to his family. He saw her, and he saw the beloved disciple. We don't know when John came there. He's not mentioned by the others, by the cross. He's not named. But there is an eyewitness element here that that tells us that John was there. John records things as he saw them. And even as the Lord Jesus is bearing our sins in his own body on the tree, he turns to the future of his own mother. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, affectionately but formally, woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, behold your mother. He was doing two things there, caring for her and drawing a line She had given birth to him. 
She had carried him for nine months. She had cared for him all her life. But as he had done at the beginning of his public ministry, so here, he is reminding her and he's reminding us that Mary, the mother of our Lord, has to be a believer too, has to trust in him too, needs his salvation and his care too. And he commits her into the hands of one who knows him and loves him and cares for him and therefore will protect her and encourage her in her love for him as a believer in the coming days. It's come to this. Jesus on the cross. That's where we end this evening. We leave him there for a moment. We'll return to this. But we can't think about this without realizing why he's there. It was my sin put him there. Your sin put him there. He's come into the world to go to that cross for us. That's what it's always been about. He'd been trying to tell his disciples that from the very beginning. He tried to hammer it into their heads. This is what it was always about. Bearing sin and scoffing root in my place. Condemned, he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. Father, this evening we pray that you would take these precious moments that we've been reflecting on our Lord. Dreadful for those people, his mother, we can't even begin to imagine the agony in her mother, in that mother's heart. She'd been told, a sword will pierce your side also. And there by the cross, the nails in his hands and feet had pierced her through. And Jesus cares for her. And as Jesus cared for her, so he cares for us. He is there because he loved us to the end. And we pray tonight that you would give us the faith to trust in him, give us the love to follow him and serve him, and make Jesus infinitely precious to us, we pray. In his strong name, amen.